I don't always have to just like run out and and get high to avoid how I'm feeling. But instead, I can just respond with a sort of gentleness, which is just seeing what's coming, listening to it, letting it be there, and dealing with it the best I can. That was Joseph Armstrong, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Welcome to the show, Dharma Talkers. As always, I appreciate you and your commitment to fueling your practice, not only through physical work, but through intellectual work and conscious conversation. Before we start, let's touch on the physical side. If you're looking to advance your yoga practice, check out the Henry Yoga app. I've designed a 40-day, 40 minutes daily program that includes rigorous and efficient vinyasa classes punctuated with workshop sessions to deepen your understanding of your physical and energy body. Go get the first two classes free at henryyoga.com. Okay, look, trauma is real. Most people agree that everyone, no matter how comfortable or privileged their life looks from the outside, has been through some kind of pain or hurt or struggle that they've had to reckon with and will most likely continue to do so for much of their life. This is part of the human experience. But what about ancestral trauma? The sort of trauma we inherit from our family or forebears and gets passed down. How do we overcome something so deeply rooted in our DNA and childhood, even past life conditioning? This is something my guest Joseph Armstrong thinks about often. And to Joseph, it all starts with conscious reflection on how we talk to ourselves. Can we take an honest look at how past behaviors and our ancestry have slipped into our subconscious and infiltrated even our manner of self-talk? Because when we can be gentle with ourselves, that's the first step to existing gently with others, including family members down the line, lovers, students, and even the non-human sentient beings in our lives. And then maybe we have a fighting chance of breaking the cycle. This episode is brought to you in part by Rainbow, my favorite sustainable mushroom company offering medicinal foods and supplements to elevate body, mind, and spirit. If you know me, you know I'm all about that mushroom lifestyle, and the folks behind Rainbow are fueled by an even higher level of obsession. They already nailed it with the 1111 tincture, which I've been using for months now, not only to stimulate my focus and creativity, but also to boost my immune system. It's a non-psychoactive medicinal mushroom tincture with reishi, chaga, cordyceps, lion's mane, turkey tail, shiitake, oyster, royal sun, agaricon, maitake, and mesima. Yeah, the gang's all here. But now they've just released a new product called Forest Juice, which is essentially the purest Canadian maple syrup you can find infused with all the adaptogenic medicinal mushrooms of the forest's healing ecology. They recommend sweetening your coffee or tea with it, but to be candid, I just take it by the shot and it's delicious. So are you ready to feed your inner rainbow? 
Go to rainbow.com and use code HENRYWINS for 15% off your order. Once again, that's rainbow, R-A-I-N-B-O, no W, dot com, and use code HENRYWINS for 15% off your order of the 1111 and or the Forest Juice. Full disclosure, this brand is not a paid sponsor, but I am an affiliate, meaning when you order their products, I'll earn a small commission for sending you their way. So if you'd like to support the show, you can buy one of the items I recommend, and you'll not only receive a high-quality product, but also know that you're helping to keep Dharma Talk up and running. As far as other ways to support, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes which helps more than you know with discoverability, or make a direct financial contribution at henrywins.com slash donate. I've got one more announcement for you this week, which is that Veronica, my wife, and I are gearing up for a tour, a little mini tour through Europe in January through early February 2020. We're going to be at the Yoga Garage in Florence, Studio Geotir in Milan, Anahata Yoga Studio in Thessaloniki, Greece, and Hara Yoga Studio in Barcelona. So check out the details for that little tour at henrywinds.com events and sign up if you're in the area. All right, now back to the show. Introducing my guest, Joseph Armstrong at Joseph Armstrong Yoga on Instagram is a level two authorized Ashtanga yoga teacher and practitioner who runs the Morning Mysore program at Miami Life Center and offers courses on omstars.com. He credits the spiritual inquiry of yoga paired with recovery philosophy for pulling him out of a life of generational trauma, IV drug use, and despair. Joseph is an animal lover, sci-fi junkie, and newlywed. Hey, if you enjoy this episode and you want to go deeper with Joseph, learn about his classes at Miami Life Center or Ohm Stars, then go to dharmatalk.show and type Joseph in the search bar. And you're going to find all of the notes, the highlights with timestamps and links from this episode, including Joseph's recommended book. And If you ever need a book to read, remember that I keep a running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk on my website. So just head over to henrywins.com slash books and pick out your next read. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Joseph Armstrong. Joseph Armstrong, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And I'm recording from Mysore, India, so I'm hoping that the unexpected power cuts don't pop up during this interview. Um, I'm hoping we make it through without trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is advanced level podcast recording if you are dialing in from Mysore, India. But yeah. I think we can do it. Okay, good. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, um, I'm doing great. Uh, This is a big day for me. I'm getting ready to, I have a big technical day. I'm launching a yoga app and I'm also ushering in a transition at my home studio from one software to another. So I expect to have my head buried in a computer for most of the day, but such is life sometimes. Um, Yeah. But that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. 
All right. Okay. <laughs> I always I always start with the same opening question. Um, so I'm going to give you that question now. What does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? Okay. So I think that um, I should start by saying that I, I thought about this, and I don't really have a very firm definition of, of dharma. Um, but I do have some loose ideas about like the process and the process of understanding one's place and role in the universe, which I think is kind of the gist of Dharma. Um, and when I was thinking about it, I also thought it was pretty interesting that some people have like crystal clear ideas about their calling from an early age, but others tend to really struggle uh, with understanding the calling. Um, so, and, and then there are others of us who kind of like myself, who kind of touch on their dharma and then forget about it or push it away entirely. Um, so when, when I was thinking about all that, I just wanted to sort of start out by saying that um, if we don't have any idea what our dharma is, that's okay too, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but that said, I think that if one wants to try to understand their, their dharma, they have to try to tune in to what it is their inner voice of knowing is saying. Um, so that, that inner voice for me is, is the voice that I can like trust most implicitly. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of confusion a lot of times about what my dharma is, but an example of one of the things I understand most clearly about what, what I should be doing is in regards to um, my relationship to animals. So my inner voice of knowing is very strong when it comes to uh, wanting to care for animals and not wanting to eat them um, and stuff like that. So um, the inner voice of knowing is just one that you like implicitly trust. And um, <clears throat> I think all of us have this voice and we can recognize it because it'll feel like super sincere and sometimes even like happy or joyous. Um, and at the same time, if, if you don't easily recognize this inner voice of knowing, then you might need some sort of like practice, uh, which was my case. Um, so in terms of my ability to listen uh, to this inner voice, I, I think it's important to recognize that I have like a really imaginative mind and a somewhat like obsessive mind. Um, and as a kid, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Um, and I also had some pretty like traumatic early life events. So <clears throat> my mom was an addict and I suffered some pretty severe injuries, like physically and emotionally as a result of that. Um, and in the end, I was mostly raised by my grandmother. Um, and um, that wasn't much easier than, than my early life with my, with my mom. My life with my grandmother was also pretty challenging because we had sort of like this generational trauma that we were all dealing with. And <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I kind of ultimately ended up going the route of like escapism. So instead of like listening to, to this voice, 
I often turn to some method of escape. So when I was very young, that escape was often in the form of like some sci-fi book. I was obsessed with like Star Trek and I was reading any sci-fi I could get my hands on. Um, <clears throat> and then a little bit later, I, I did this sort, same sort of like obsessive thing with musical theater. And in high school, that was my whole life. Um, and then eventually, as I got into my adult years, this sort of obsessive escapism uh, led me to drugs and, and also some pretty hard drugs. So, so like alcohol, weed, uh, coke, and uh, eventually crystal meth and IV drug use. Um, and really, I, I feel like I was headed towards some like really big final escape. Uh, that was kind of like the subconscious goal that I seem to have been heading towards. Um, but before that happened, I, I did have like a miraculous event happen in my life. And I discovered a couple of things that really helped me. And um, in particular, I, I discovered 12th. 12-step recovery philosophy, um, and also yoga philosophy. And it was really sort of the, the power of these two things multiplied that helped me open up to, uh, like ideas that ideas like, like that I might possibly have some self-worth or something to offer the world. Um, and I, I say all this to sort of lead me to, what I think is one of my biggest dharmas today, uh, if I can, if I can isolate a couple, and I do think there's quite a few, but um, I picked it up directly from the recovery fellowship, and and my calling is really to share my experience, strength, and hope with people who might benefit from it. Um, and when I was thinking about this, I and writing about this, I sort of phrase uh, that calling to share my experience, strength, and hope um, as if it's uh, related to mirrors. So I, I also think my dharma is about seeking mirrors and, and being a mirror. Um, so like three mirrors that I really seek to, to see myself better. I've already mentioned a couple. One is the 12-step recovery. One is yoga. And one is also therapy, like uh, psychotherapy. Um, and these things help me see clearly my patterns um, and my ability to uh, connect to others. Um, and I try to offer myself as a mirror uh, with my teaching and, and especially my writing. Um, and I mentioned earlier, like when I started describing my understand of understanding of Dharma, that some of us touch on our Dharma and then forget about it. And that's, that's really me. Um, because when I was a kid and, and as a teenager even, I really loved to write. Um, and especially like really bad poetry. Um, and the catharsis of that process was really powerful to me. And it was something that really called to me. Um, but over the course of my years in addiction, I really completely forgot about this passion and the joy it sparked. Um, but then 
after I got sober and started healing, I, I got on Instagram and I started doing a lot of writing there. And I found that people were really responsive to, to some of the ideas and the emotions that I put out there. Um, and through the process of connecting with people through my writing on Instagram, I, I really came to understand that this is also another really big uh, dharmic point for me. And, you know, it, earlier this year, I did um, a 10-day Vipassana, and that sort of blew the lid off of all of it. And in that time, I became even more connected to this writing dharma than ever, ever before. Um, so yeah, there, there are some of my ideas on Dharma and, and my own and, and what it means for all of us. Well, I really appreciate that multifaceted answer. And I think that just like you, I agree that our Dharma or Dharmas can be offshoots in many different directions. And I like what you had to say about existing in, in different roles at the same time. Um, and if we are all, you know, seeking mirrors to reflect back upon ourselves and also trying to offer ourselves up as mirrors through sharing authentically and vulnerably, then, yeah, I mean, we're all just trying to create this hall of mirrors to see the light. And I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, there was one point that you made early on that I would love to try to unpack a little bit more because it's something that I think about often, which is this inner voice of knowing. You said it's the one that you can trust implicitly. Mm. And then at the same time, you know, growing up, yeah. you, at least in retrospect, <laughs> you have the ability to reflect on some of your behaviors and your uh, affinity for sci-fi and musical theater, which eventually paved the way for you know, drug addiction as a form of escapism that was yeah. subconscious. It was not something that you were in. It wasn't happening at the liminal level. And yet something within you is steering you in that direction. How do we differentiate the internal triggers or internal guidelines that are taking us in one direction, which could be self-destructive from this inner voice of knowing that is that's joyful and can be trusted? Hmm. So you were going in and out there a little bit, but I, I think you asked me, how do we tell the difference between um, the voices that might be uh, leading us astray and the, the voice that might be leading us towards uh, something good or, or helpful? Is that right? Essentially. Essentially, yeah, that was the question. Like, how do we, if we have multiple subconscious voices within us, how do we know which one is that inner voice of knowing and which one could be taking us in the direction of escapism or some other, you know, some other form of self-destruction? You know, I think that the inner voice of knowing, um, it's hard to, to know what, what it is that you should be doing that that's going to be, um, best for you or any given situation. Um, so, I mean, what I try to do in, in my life now is look for um, the action um, that is going to feel uh, most, um, I don't know, 
most of service to myself and also to the people around me. Um, so I feel like when I was younger, my decisions around uh, what was good and what was right were more uh, based on instant gratification um, or uh, feeling good in an instant, uh, instantaneous manner. Um, but as I've gotten older and really started to uh, listen more closely to, to what the different uh, parts of me uh, suggest I do in any given situation, um, I've learned to uh, not always make the choice that is going to be the most enjoyable or the most um, instantly uh, pleasurable, uh, but instead to, to look for the decision and the choice that is going to sort of cultivate um, more long-term uh, health for myself and and also for the health of my relationships. Um, so, so I think that that's really the crux of it. When, when I reflect back on uh, old unhealthy decision-making, um, it really centered around really selfish choices that didn't help anyone but myself. Uh, but now I try to uh, make choices and orientate myself in a way that is actually going to improve uh, my relationships with other people and other beings. Cool. That's that's helpful. I think that there there's a lot of wisdom in that, and um, and as with most forms of wisdom, it comes with time and experience. It's it's easy to look in the in the short term for instant gratification when you don't have a wealth of experience of long term effects of your actions. But as more time goes on and you see how things unfold, then yes, it becomes easier to factor all of that in. Yeah. You, um, and, you know, it takes it takes for some of us like more suffering than others. Like I, I really had to do a number on myself and my relationships before um, I was able to really process that that sort of uh, important decision making uh, skill. I heard you mention that you as a child process some generational trauma. And my question is, how? what was the experience of that for you? And how do you differentiate personal or individual trauma from something that's inherited or somehow ancestral? Okay, that's a good question. Um, and you know, it, like it, it, in a lot of ways, everything we deal with in life is sort of like cause and effect, right? Um, so, um, you know, this sort of generational trauma goes way back in my family. So, um, just to keep it concise to the past few generations, um, my grandmother was, was raised by a really strict woman, um, and, uh, she was in a family that um, was very poor. So she started working when she was like 13 years old. Um, 
And she really ended up living uh, a life that was not what she had intended um, and not what she wanted. So uh, part of that really included three children, like three children that I don't think that she necessarily was really prepared for or, or wanted. Um, and I, I know that might sound harsh, but um, she just she just wasn't ready for it. And that's evident through how she raised my mom and my aunt and my uncle. Um, and, you know, it's so evident that my mom ended up dead before she was 40 years old. Um, and my uncle ended up um, in and out of drug abuse. And my aunt has struggled with all sorts of um, depression and health issues all of her life. Um, so, I, I mean, it's, it's just very clear that when you have um, sort of a parent who's, who's not all there in the, the parenting role, that that affects the children greatly. Um, and then, you know, that the same thing traveled right down to me. So, so my mom ended up having children. Um, and the difference is I, I do believe that my mom, I, I felt very loved and, and like she really wanted to do the best she could for me. Um, but, you know, she had just gotten really messed up by, by her own childhood. Um, and by the time I came into the picture, she was already um, really heavy into drug use of all kinds. And she was running with gangs like the Hells Angels and um, things were just just really bad. Um, so when, when I come up in that situation as a child and um, I'm doing things like making my own food as, as like a five-year-old or um, being found alone in the house with her when she's um, passed out with a needle in her arm. And uh, and even worse, like being caught in the middle of violence between her and whatever person is there with her. Uh, these are just very affecting things. And, you know, I don't even things like um, ending up in the house with her with her uh, out from the heroin. I don't even remember that. But uh, I know it happened because my family has told me my aunt found me in that situation. Um, but Basically, what happened in the end is that, <clears throat> you know, she um, she left me in a situation where I felt completely abandoned, right? And I think that she probably felt the same way uh, with my grandmother to her. Um, and as a result of that, I had a really hard time um, cultivating relationships uh, to this day, um, anytime after that sort of trauma and that sort of, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, just formation that wasn't really conducive to feeling, uh, love or receiving love or giving love, uh, it really affects your whole life. Um, and it actually wasn't even until recently, uh, in the past couple of years, I was, this is interesting. I was in a, a therapy session and um, my therapist 
got out her notebook and she she pulled out a couple of things that I had said over uh, the course of our sessions. And she pulled out exhibit A, which was me getting upset um, when my sister was insisting that I come home for a holiday. And an example B, which was me... Um, not responding well to my my uh, fiance at the time, uh, insisting that I do a certain uh, event with his family. And, and what she told me, which I had never seen, was that um, I react very poorly to the idea that someone might need me. Um, and that's because I, I felt completely unneeded and abandoned as a child. Um, I just felt abandoned and, and neglected. And in fact, I was very neglected. Um, so I would end up in situations like, um, being in a house with my mother who was, um, totally, uh, out from, uh, shooting up heroin and my aunt came and found me there. Um, and, I ended up caught between episodes of violence with my mom and uh, boyfriends of hers that landed me in the hospital. Um, and it was just very tough. It, it, and it really affected my ability to, um, to connect with others. And, and really the, the most affecting thing was that uh, in the end, even though it was for my own good, my mother ended up um, surrendering me to uh, like child protective services. So um, I spent a little bit of time in a children's home uh, before I ended up back with my grandmother. Um, and I guess I guess what happened in the long run, was that I really was not able to um, cultivate healthy relationships. Um, and I, uh, just a, a year or so ago, I was um, in a therapy session. And um, after a number of, of meetings, my, my therapist uh, pulled out her notebook and she had some like bullet points and basically what she did was list situations which I talked to her about where uh, when anyone made me feel like they needed me, even in very simple ways, like my sister inviting me home for Christmas or my uh, fiance at the time uh, inviting me to a, a family gathering of his, sometimes I would just be really put out by it. I just... I uh, really wouldn't like it. I would feel like I was being uh, controlled or, or it just triggered me. Um, and, and what she was pointing out was that um, I just didn't have a really healthy uh, concept of what normal family relationships are like or what it's like to be needed. Um, and I felt so rejected and abandoned that at this point in my grown-up life, I still thought it was weird when it felt like people actually needed or wanted me um, around. Um, 
So yeah, generational trauma is is a very real thing, and like I can see it clearly um, from myself back to my mother, to my grandmother, and and who knows how far back it goes. Um, but one thing I am pretty sure of is that um, thanks to the practices, like these these mirrors that I'm trying to look at, so that I can see myself, um, I've got a better handle on it now than I ever have and maybe a better handle on it than anyone in my family has in a very long time. Well, that would have been, you know, that's the natural next question is if there's this momentum built up against us in in the form of generational trauma that stacks upon itself, then it's upon us to try to stop it or else the cycle perpetuates, right? Yeah. So, how how do we take accountability for something that is so overwhelmingly large mm. and how do we how do we stop it um well you know for me it was really like um i have a funny relationship with god but for me like if anything has ever been an act of god it was me coming to understand um that all of this stuff had had built up to the point that my own self-destruction was imminent. Um, Mm. So for, for some of us, it actually takes being right on death's doorstep to sort of uh, wake up and start to make those changes. Um, So, I mean, in, in recovery, I I think most of us have heard the term rock bottom. Um, And for me, it took a really, really dramatic rock bottom to make me realize, okay, so right now I really have two choices and those are either to die and follow the patterns of my mother or to try to do something different. Um, And I was fortunate that along the way, even through the years of some of my worst addictive behavior, um, I managed to get like some, some bright spots And in some of those bright spots, I I had started practicing yoga um, and um, something in me, the more more sober I got after I hit this rock bottom and the more sober time I got, the more I felt drawn to and compelled to to practice uh, meditation and breath control and asana. and for, for some of us, it's really um, a matter of finding a practice that really restructures our lives. And that's what Ashtanga Yoga did for me. Um, because I'd, I'd already been to these, these 12-step programs. I'd already been to therapy. Um, and somehow none of these things were an actual practice for me. They weren't something I could actually like institute in my life and something um, which people were going to hold me accountable to. Um, and for me, that's that's what Ashtanga Yoga finally became. It became a program of, of change, insight, and accountability. Change, insight, and accountability. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> it's like... It's the, it's the new Tristana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and even like, it's funny you say that, but even something as simple as Tristana is, is really revolutionary to someone who has no self-control, like someone who just acts without thinking very much or 
or acts with uh, willfulness even um, to just stop and to listen to someone tell you, just feel your breath, just look at the tip of your nose, just pull your belly in and reach your arms up and do this for the next week and see how that goes. That was, that was really powerful yeah. for me. Um, and it really gave me something to hold on to. And, and what was the introduction? How did, how did you first encounter Ashtanga yoga and what was your initial reaction to it? Oh, okay. So that's actually a long story. Um, I'll try to, I'll try to put it into like bullet points. And, um, I, I first started, <laughs> okay. I started practicing vinyasa yoga, um, in like 2008 and, um, this was when I was still in and out of very serious phases of addiction. Um, and uh, I, I had a teacher in Washington, DC. Her name is um, Faith and she's a really amazing vinyasa teacher. Um, and her classes just really spoke to me. And I started practicing with her a lot. I didn't live far away and and that vinyasa class really, really spoke to me. Um, and for a long time, Ashtanga was just like on the periphery as something that was way too strict and structured for me. Uh, because that's not what I was really wanting for my life. I was still wanting to, to escape. Um, and I, I'm not saying at all that vinyasa yoga is escapism. Um, quite quite the opposite. I think that it's just as um, uh, able to pull you into yourself as anything. But I think what I mean is that Ashtanga has this reputation of being really militant. Um, and I think that's what I sort of avoided uh, when I thought about Ashtanga and why I stayed away from it. And I even in a period of trying to, to get myself better, um, I had already tried a rehab or two. I decided that I was going to go to India. Um, and I ended up doing a teacher training here in Mysore that wasn't even Ashtanga. It was, it was a vinyasa form. Um, How interesting. Yeah. And like Ashtanga, like the name KPJ wasn't like the, the Joyce family, Sharat, Patabi Joyce, none of these names were even part of my vocabulary at that point. I just knew that Ashtanga was something that had this set sequence that didn't really feel like it was for me. Um, so I came here and I, I did another training. Um, but it wasn't until much later, like years later, that I ended up walking into um, an Ashtanga studio. And it happened because I had moved to Miami and um, in a crazy turn of events, like it was actually the party city of Miami where I finally got sober. Um, and I, I, I was really committed to changing my life. And I did some research and discovered that Miami Life Center was sort of like one of the preeminent Ashtanga studios in the US. And it was right here where I was living. And they had a really cheap uh, first month new student deal. So that's really what pulled me into Ashtanga was, was the price that I could afford it. And, um, yeah. and that the studio had a good reputation. 
Um, so it wasn't, I didn't ever go seeking it out. In fact, I avoided it for a long time. Um, but I will say that the first time I stepped into the Mysore room and practiced that self-guided form, I knew that I was done with other forms. I just knew that that was the method that, that was, had been waiting for me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's that inner voice of knowing right there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you did not move to Miami to, to practice at MLC, obviously. No. Were you, were you moving there in an attempt to clean up your life or was it totally unrelated? No, it was unrelated. I moved there because my uh, boyfriend at the time wanted to go to school there. Um, so we had gotten a few months sober and our, our lives were, were starting to change. And he decided that he wanted to finally go back to school. And this college in Miami had a really good program for what he ended up going into. Um, so, so that's why we moved down there. Um, no, I had no idea. I don't think I knew who Kino or Tim were before I Googled them yeah. that day. Yeah. Yeah. The stars aligned basically. Yeah. yeah. And it was really, um, my whole life really pivots around walking into that studio. Like a lot of things were changing. I, I came in and out of a lot of sobrieties, a lot of addictions, uh, for years on end, but it was really, um, after I started a committed daily practice at Miami Life Center, I never had another relapse. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So, and congratulations also. Thank you. Yeah. So it's like I'm going on six years now, which is fucking incredible, like unimaginable yeah. even. Um, yeah. Thank you, yoga. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you said that one of the things that, that repelled you from Ashtanga originally was this reputation of it being militant, mm. very rigid. Yeah. Um, but I also know that there's, there's a phrase that, that means something to you. I'd love you to speak on and, and that's exist gently, which feels mm. like it's somewhat, um, counterproductive to the militant style you once believed of Ashtanga. So talk to me about existing gently. Um, well, you know what, first of all, about the militant style of Ashtanga, like uh, that was more so my headspace than the methodology itself. Um, and right. I just really didn't want anything that was going to challenge me or um, actually uh, make me do anything in a way that I didn't necessarily want to. Um, so, so that whole militant mindset, that was my sort of, that was the tone I put on it. Um, and what I found instead when I moved into the practice was that um, instead of being militant, it was actually very nurturing. Um, and the process of, um, getting onto my mat every single day, um, first of all, it provided a stability that was unknown to me. Um, it provided insight into how I was, uh, 
treating myself, how I treated my body, how I talked to myself. And this is a really big insight that I've gotten through this practice is that my own self-talk is very strong. Like I, I have a very strong tone with myself. Um, and I've, I've started to see that more and more through my practice and observing. And um, I've also learned to connect that to um, how I talk to others. A lot of times I have a very strong tone with others as well. Um, if I don't really try to be aware of how I'm communicating, um, I can be tough. Um, but the practice opened up space for me to be aware of that and to respond to that with um, just uh, an acceptance of, of wherever I was on a given day. Um, and also not just acceptance, but a perseverance. Like, okay, this is how it is right now. This is how I'm talking to myself. This is how I feel. Um, and I have options. I can not, I don't always have to just like run out and, and get high to avoid how I'm feeling. Um, but instead I can just respond with a sort of gentleness, which is just seeing what's coming, listening to it, um, letting it be there, um, and dealing with it the best I can. Um, so, I mean, and the funny thing is like, I still don't always deal with, with situations or relationships or my emotions or my thoughts in like the most perfect manner, uh, far from it. But what I have learned to do is to have enough care and respect for myself and my relationships that I don't go out and just abandon everyone and everything in favor of a seemingly easier route. So, so I think that's what I mean by existing gently. It's, it's just um, a willingness to sort of tune into how I'm feeling and just um, try to be uh, kinder to myself and, and less, um, less reactive. Well said. And, um, you know, how you speak to yourself is, of course, often reflected in how you speak and act toward others. It's that whole that whole mirror thing coming back. Um, yeah. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your um, how your love of animals is taking shape. Do you mm. what does that mean to you? you? You spoke on that earlier as one of your your dharmas. So, yeah, what do you yeah. How does that relationship look? Well, you know, someone asked me once um, what I think is godly, what I think is godly. And I thought long and hard about that question. And really, like the most godly thing that I experience is my relationship with my dog, um, because it just feels very pure. Um, it feels very, um, like connected, very honest. Um, it feels like there's a sort of, um, like almost even oneness and, and union between us because my, my love for, for my dog is just like so immense and so pure. Um, 
like even right now, my husband is away from home and we have a dog sitter. And this poor woman is sending me videos of like everything my dog does at my request, just because I, I miss her so much. Like she's literally sending me videos of my dog pooping. Like I didn't ask for that, but I think that she thinks that's going to make me feel better. Uh, and she was right. And she was right. Yeah. I was like, okay, that looks, everything's normal there. Um, so I don't know. My, my love for animals is just, I just feel like how we treat animals is like, I don't think it's an understatement to say that um, how we treat animals as, as a, a collective, I think it's very reflective of our um, state of evolution. Um, and it feels like when we can't see the soul behind the eyes of an animal, that we're really still very disconnected from something very important. Um, and I feel like, it's like I said earlier, like my, my clearest understanding of what I should be doing in this world is, is having a voice for animals, um, respecting animals. Like I, I have a very solid dream to have a, an animal rescue center. Um, and I just, I know that's in, that's in my future. Um, and I, I also like, I will, I write a lot as well on my Instagram about, about my beliefs with animals. And, you know, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to hear like my very strong opinions on, on that. And a lot of people get really offended, like people I love and, and care about, um, have big time problems with my, again, talking about self-talk and talk to others. Like I take a really strong stance on, on these animal rights issues and it can be hard for people. They, they take it personally sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. But other times people see what I've written and in quite a few times I've had people reach out to me and say, okay, I've seen enough now. Like this was it. This, this is the post that has really opened my eyes to what's happening with animals and, and their plight. Um, mm. So yeah, that, that feels really important to me. What do you think it is that causes um, the very polarizing reaction? Like, what do you think people are seeing that they don't like when they have that vehement, that vehement re reaction to what you say? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that the, like, the crux of the issue is that society teaches everyone and maybe even our base, like animal instinct teaches everyone that it's just perfectly fine to, to eat anything that is not a human. Um, and when someone says that that might, might not be true, then that's a big, like, that can be really offensive when, when I tell you, um, and I think I really believe this. I, I think I do. But when I tell people that I place the same value on an animal life that I do on a human life, they find that really, really offensive. Um, mm. 
because they want I mean, to believe that the human life is worth more. Why. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they've been taught that their whole life. All of human history um, has taught us that. And, you know, it is, in fact, true, I think, that our position as, like, apex predator made all of this possible. But, like, we've got to keep evolving as well. Like, it doesn't just stop with, like, yeah, we've been the apex predator for a long time now. So, so what's next? Um, right. It's like, do we, do we use our position of power and intellect to continue being the predator or we use it to become caretaker? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, and I mean, I will also say that I absolutely think that this is coming. Um, and I lately, when I talk about it with people, like I use the example of these, um, cultured meats that are that are coming in the near future and i know a lot of like like um a lot of people are kind of put off by them even progressive like animal rights types they think it's like franken meat and that we don't need any meat at all but the fact is that people are addicted it's it's an addiction and it's also cultural and historical um but i think that these cultured meats could really signal a complete turning point because when you put a steak in front of a, a person and say, would you rather have the murdered snake steak or would you rather have the, the lab-grown cultured steak? If they taste the same, I don't think people are going to choose the murdered steak. Um, Maybe in the beginning think, out of a fear for change, but I think you're right, you know, in the, in the long term. Yeah. And I, and I also think that once, once that change starts to actually become commonplace, that we'll have the space and the distance from our, our um, I don't even know if you want to call it our biology or our evolution, to recognize that even though it's our nature, perhaps, it is pretty barbaric. And I mean, it's just like the, the terror that we inflict on helpless beings. It's just barbaric. Um, and I think that that will be seen. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a difficult issue, um, steeped in a lot of cultural conditioning. You know, I, I also keep a vegan diet, but it took me a long time to get there. You know, I, I've only, uh, kept a vegan diet for a little over a year. And up until then, I never even really considered it to be quite honest. And that just yeah. tells you what, how, how deeply ingrained the narrative is about what's normal. And, yeah, you know, and I also never, never tried to, I personally don't push veganism on people, um, because I know that it's a process, you know, and I, and I, I see that reflected in my own history. And at the same time, I try to educate. So I, I really respect your passion for it. And I think it's, I think it's awesome. But I, well, I also at the same time understand why it's so polarizing. Yeah. And I, I want to qualify my, my passion with reality. And the reality is that I first went vegetarian when I was in high school. Um, and then I went through a period of eating meat again for many years. I mean, when you're an addict and basically living on the streets, you're going to eat whatever's put in front of you. Um, yeah. And then even after I got sober, I continued to eat meat for a while. Um, and then eventually after I got solidly sober, I went completely vegetarian about five years ago. 
And my battle in and out of veganism lingers to this day because I will tell you that here in India, I've been having chai. Um, and it was one of the first things when I did when I got here was I had a chai. Um, and I with think milk. I, yeah, with milk. And I think yeah. that I sort of, um, I let myself have a little wiggle room because there's this idea when you're here that the cows are treated better because they're, mm -hmm. uh, they don't eat cows and they roam the streets and whatnot. But the truth is it's still not okay with me. Like I don't feel good about it. It's a completely like addictive go with the crowd behavior that I don't really feel proud of, but it's something that I easily revert to. So I don't mm -hmm. begrudge anyone their process. I'm still in the midst of my process. But like I said, my own self-talk is very strong. And trust me, I'm, I'm giving myself a hard time about the dairy I'm having <laughs> here. And I feel like yeah. I, I should do the same in my public voice as well, um, whether it offends people or not. I, I'm, I'm offended by my own behavior. So I don't know. It's, yeah, it's right, a right. conundrum and it's hard. Mm -hmm. And all of that needs to be balanced with the, like the, 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 the pursuit of existing gently, right. To, to be kind to yourself yes. and acknowledge your own process and your own fallibility and, and constant course correction. So that's the practice. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, Joseph, I think now we ought to move on to the final section of the interview. We've covered a lot of ground, okay. but I want to leave it with the rapid fire round of questions. This is called the Prana Round. Okay. I'm going to ask you six questions. Answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> in one word, why do you practice yoga? Love. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Urdhva because I, um, I stopped thinking about anything else. I love, I love a wheel too. That's probably my favorite posture. What yeah, is yeah. the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a yoga teacher? That's a hard question. The single best cue or piece of advice. When I was, the one that's coming to mind is that when I was a new uh, Ashtangi, um, breathing deeply and with sound was very hard for me. Um, and I, I came, I was a smoker. My lungs were just very challenged. And my teacher just, gave me permission to stop is like, if you're struggling with the breath, just stop, reconnect with the breath and then keep going again. Um, yeah. Nice. Recommend one book, modern or ancient for our listeners. Hmm. So, um, I'm totally blanking out on the name of the book, but can I give an author? Yeah. 
Stephen Stephen Batchelor. Look up Stephen Batchelor, who is a uh, former Buddhist monk who writes on the possibility of being um, both an atheist and a Buddhist. And he writes a lot about the power of doubt in, in one's life. Are you thinking Stephen of Batchelor. Buddhism without beliefs? Yes, that's it. Thank All right. you. There we go. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Is my my brain went completely blank. Well, you know, I've got the hyperfast Wi-Fi in America, so I can check Amazon. So I got you. Don't worry. Ah, nice. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> Is yoga for everyone? Absolutely. Yoga is for for anyone who um can get themselves on a mat. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Final question for you, Joseph. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? Um, well, I'm on Instagram at Joseph Armstrong Yoga. Um, and you can reach out to me there anytime. Uh, I always love hearing from people about what I'm writing there. Um, and if you want to uh, support me in my dharma, uh, something that I'm really passionate about is uh, uh, animal welfare. So just um, go online and take the time to actually uh, look deeply into what situations and conditions are like in, in um, factory farming. Um, that's that's what you could do to help yourself and the animals, I think. Beautiful. That's a great takeaway. Um, and even if it's difficult to look at, I do encourage everyone to educate yourself on on this topic. And and doesn't mean that you necessarily need to go all out and switch to a vegan diet, but to at least be conscious of the impact that your choices make is going to make all of your decisions more confident. So echo that 100 awesome thank you joseph i really appreciate you um making this work from mysore india and uh take care i i'm sure that we'll connect again soon in the future yeah thank you so much i had a, a really nice time talking to you and enjoyed your questions thank you so much Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.